What does God want from us? I mean, if somebody asked you that question, how would you answer it? What does God want from me? What does God want? And not just what does he want, but what does he want the most? Now, depending on whom you ask, you might receive uh, quite a variety of uh, responses to that kind of question, which makes this a very difficult question if some answers are correct and some answers are not. Uh, And I think it goes without saying that it's very important that we get this one correct. Uh, Some would have us believe that God, all he wants from us, all he wants is for us to be happy. Just be happy. And, you know, you might even start to believe that if you watch the guy on TV and see him flash his million-dollar smile and he says, Jesus just wants you to be happy. Now, I don't dispute the idea that God wants us to be happy. I don't dispute that at all, but I would add one simple uh, clarification, one qualification to it. God simply wants us to be happy in and with him. He wants us to be happy in and with him. You see, there are a lot of things that people do to make themselves happy, but God wants us to understand that there is no greater happiness, nothing more satisfying in the entire universe than him. Nothing. And if you think about the size of the universe, man, that is awesome to think that he wants to be the most satisfying, joyful thing we have in the entire universe. Nothing more satisfying than him, than abiding in him and abiding in his ways. When Jesus told his disciples to abide in him, you know, it wasn't for the sake of giving them anguish or or punishing them. It was so that their joy would be complete and that they would bear much fruit out of that joyful spirit. Some might tell you that God wants you to do this ritual or, or that ritual or do this thing or that thing as a means of honoring him. And a Muslim would tell you, you know, you got to pray so many times a day facing east. you got to do this. you got to do that. you got to do all these things, all these rituals. And I might imagine if you would have posed this question, what does God want from me? To the Pharisees, you might have gotten an answer similar to this. They might have said, you know, God wants you to bring your sacrifices to the temple. He wants you to obey all of his commands, all 600 plus of his commands. But you must sacrifice in the temple. And I would say, uh, you know, I, I kind of agree with that, but while the Pharisees would have been referring to the sacrifice of animals, I would say that God is far, far more interested in the sacrifice of one's self. And that's why, when Jesus, just a few chapters ago, laid out the terms and conditions for coming after him, he insisted that we deny ourselves, that we take up our cross, and then that we follow him. Is that self-sacrificial? Absolutely. That's exactly what he's saying. And that's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. In other words, Lay every aspect of your life on the altar before God. That's what he wants. That's the type of sacrifice that God wants. So as I was doing, as I was writing this and preparing this message, I googled, what does God want from me? And I got some very interesting responses. One of them was a Hindu yogi who was asked this question, what, what does God want from us? And here is his response. He says, quote, nothing, absolutely nothing. Totally nothing. God has no desires for you to be good, bad, or otherwise. End quote. 
That's from a Hindu yogi. And that isn't too far of a shot from the answer you might expect from somebody who is part of the New Age movement or who, who buys into the New Age movement because for them, God is not a person. God is something abs- more abstract. Maybe he's a force. Maybe he, he's in you. He's just as much in you as he is in this rock over here and as much as he is in this house over here and in this tree over here that God is totally impersonal, which goes without saying is vastly different from the biblical view of God. A few years ago, a man uh, heard one of my podcasts and he sent me an email. And this was a guy who, um, from all appearances, was a pedophile and was deeply involved in the occult. But there was something that I had said in this podcast that he listened to. And who knows, the Lord knows, why he was listening to one of my podcasts. But there was something in this podcast that struck him deeply in his heart. And he was very, very convicted within himself. And so he wrote me, confessing some of his sins to me. And he asked me this question, what does God want from me? What do I have to do to get this conviction, the weight of this conviction off of my heart? What does God want from me? And he asked if he could just send me a tithe or something like that and be done with it. Uh, but, but you know what? That, that's one of the great things about Jehovah, one of the great things about God. You know, usually when, uh, when, there's, when there's a benefit for you, when, when you want to get something, you know, you're, you're asking, okay, what's it going to cost me? How much money is it going to cost? But the thing is, God is not interested in your money. He's interested in, in your heart. And if the money isn't coming from the, the overflowing joy in your heart that you have in him, he doesn't want it. It's filthy. And so I told this guy, I don't want your money. And in fact, if you send me money, I promise you, I will send it back to you. I don't want it. I told him what God did want from him. Some people think that God wants moralism. Just be a good person. In another video that I watched this week, one woman responded to this question by saying that God, quote, wants me to know that I should love myself and that there's nothing I can't do if I think I can. And then she goes on to say that he, quote, wants me to do good stuff. You know, be nice to others and don't hang around with bad people, end quote. Ah, Jesus hung around with some bad people. I'm not sure that's true. The truth is that God wants much, much more than moralism from us. Even an atheist can be a moralist. Even an atheist. Now, this is a question What's expected of me? What, what, what does somebody want from me? This is a question that we ask about almost every aspect of our lives. When we get married, we want to know what our spouse wants or expects from us. When we get a job, we want to know what the boss wants or expects from us. And I can't help but wonder if the reason that we get so hung up on knowing exactly what is expected of us is because really we're just trying to coast. Really, we're just trying to, to, to just get through things, giving the least amount we possibly can. Well, today we're going to see how Jesus would answer this question. What does God want from me? Now, as we turn to our passage today in the book of Mark, we find that Jesus is still in Jerusalem. Uh, you'll remember that he came into Jerusalem fulfilling that prophecy from Daniel And he cleaned out the temple for the second time. He had done it at the beginning of his ministry, and he does it again here. 
and he brings the sacrificial system to a halt. And he proceeds to instruct his disciples and us on how to not live a cursed life. And then he was confronted by the three classes of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They had intercepted Jesus. They cut him off as he's on his way back to the temple the day after he cleansed it. They cut him off as he came back uh, in an attempt to trap him, trip him up in his words. And they started off by asking what his source of authority was. And Jesus told them that he would answer them if they would tell him who the authority for John the Baptist was. Was it man or was it God? And of course, instead of getting trapped by answering, the religious leaders just refused to give a response. We don't know. Of course, they did know, but they didn't want to give a response because they didn't want to give an inch or even an inch of ground to Jesus. So Jesus proceeded to tell the parable of the vineyard, which ended with a prophecy that the religious system in the temple and all of Israel would be destroyed and that the land would be given away to others. And of course, this infuriated the religious leaders, and so they left And in came some Pharisees and some Herodians to try and trap Jesus by asking him, should we pay a poll tax to Caesar or should we not? And of course, Jesus responds by giving his famous line, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, render unto God the things that are God's. And of course, this carries the necessary and the correct implication. The being a good citizen in an earthly kingdom, such as the United States or Rome in the first century, and being a good citizen of the kingdom of God are usually, usually compatible and don't necessarily need to contradict each other if we're wise about how we live our lives. Now, it's important that we understand this context because this is all part of a, a bigger picture. And the passage that we're going to cover today wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, it could make some sense, but I think you're going to get a deeper understanding of exactly what Jesus is talking about when we understand that this is the context. And, we want, and we're going to see what it is that God wants from us and what it means to render unto God the things that belong to God. So the text continues in the same setting. We pick it up in Mark chapter 12, verses 18 and 19. Some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now we should immediately see here uh, that the Sadducees have understood that Jesus was claiming that God was his authority, but they think that they have maybe found some kind of loophole in the word of God as delivered by Moses. We should also note, the one thing that we need to know about the Sadducees is not only that they were sad, um, (laughs) but that they only accepted the Pentateuch as scripture. That is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. That was their scripture, nothing else. It was only the first five books of the Bible. And of course, the first five books of the Bible were written almost completely by Moses. And I say almost because at the end of Deuteronomy, you get the story that Moses died. Uh, Did Moses write that? Maybe. Maybe God gave him a vision of what was going to happen after his life, and he recorded that. Or maybe, maybe Joshua or somebody else who was close to Moses came in and recorded what happened to Moses at the end of his life. So with that in mind, why didn't the Sadducees 
believe in the resurrection of the dead. Because there's no specific, explicit mention of it in the first five books of the Bible. And because they're sad. Um, but I think it's pretty clear that <laughs> I think it's pretty clear that this question that they're asking not only shows that they don't really know a whole lot about Jesus, but I think it also shows us that they don't have a very high opinion of anyone who believes in the resurrection. And Jesus has been telling his disciples, I'm going to come back after three days. These guys don't know it. The, the Sadducees don't know it. But the disciples do. And Jesus is being put to the test here on the resurrection. And so they start mocking him. That's really what these guys are doing. And what makes it clear that they're mocking their own scriptures is the fact that they don't believe in the afterlife. They think that this is all it is. This life is all we've got, so let's make it as good as we possibly can. That was their theology. So they don't believe in the afterlife, and yet they're going to ask Jesus a question specifically about what happens after death. So we continue in verses 20 to 24. The Sadducees are asking, There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving no children, and the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. And so these guys come with a a hypothetical question about a woman who was apparently slipping rat poison into the food of her husband's. You know, I, I don't know, what, that's really what, the, what I see in this story. You know, they're, they're asking about this woman who, you know, we, we've got this guy who was a police officer who had three wives die, and everybody's suspicious of him. This woman's had seven husbands. I would be looking at her cooking. And so what's, what's going on there? Now, honestly, I've, I've never heard of any type of situation like this, but I guess that's what makes it hypothetical. Uh, but the point that they're really trying to get across is that the idea of the resurrection is ridiculous, to them, based on their theology. The whole idea of having a resurrection is ridiculous. After all, they're thinking, look at all this ridiculous stuff that you would have to sort through. And this is just silly. So how are you going to answer this, Jesus? But look at how Jesus responds to them. Which, by the way, is much more graceful than I think I would have been. Um, he responds in verses 25 to 27. Jesus said to them, Is this... Not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, to Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. I love, I love this first line of Jesus' response. Is this not the reason that you are mistaken? Because you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. Wow. Really, this is what any theological mistake boils down to. Either we misunderstand the scriptures or we underestimate the power of God. We think, oh, you know, that can't possibly be true. God couldn't possibly have really promised that because we don't understand his power. And as I was thinking about this this week, 
I thought, man, there are so many areas in all of life which flow out of this mistake, not understanding the scriptures or not understanding the power of God. In December of 2007, a man by the name of Matthew Murray stormed into a youth with a mission training center in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and he emptied the clip of his gun, shooting four people, two of them fatally. Two of them died. Matthew Murray left the premises and made his way over to New Life Church, also in Colorado Springs, where he was denied access into the premises by a security guard who was then forced to kill or be killed. And there can never, there can never be a happy ending to a story like this. Death found Matthew Murray at a church called New Life. And upon searching his body in the car, the investigating authorities found a note which read, quote, Why didn't any changes occur or any love or help come from you when I accepted you as Lord and Savior? This was a man who badly, badly misunderstood the scriptures and underestimated the power of God because one's heart has to be unbelievably far away from God to do something like this, to do something like what Matthew Murray did, because the scriptures assure us time and time again that God is a strong tower of refuge for the weak, for the broken. And when God doesn't meet our expectations, as he apparently didn't meet Matthew Murray's expectations, it's because our expectations are sinful, self-serving, And short-sighted. Let me say that again. When God doesn't meet our expectations, it's because our expectations are sinful, self-serving, or short-sighted. We have misunderstood the scriptures if God has not met our expectations. Or we've underestimated his power. Now, as Christians, you and I will face a barrage of questions and objections to our faith from people who either misunderstand the Scriptures or underestimate the power of God, or both. Usually, I'd say it's both. And if we're going to stand a chance, we have to understand, first of all, that we're not going to be able to answer every single objection that's out there because there are an infinite number of objections. And trying to keep up is like getting on a treadmill and just going nowhere. What we need to understand, this is what I've found out. You know, I studied apologetics thinking, man, I can just, I can come up with these logical arguments and somebody will have to believe. And I'd say that if somebody's being honest, yes, they will. But the fact is, usually they won't. So what I've learned And what we need to understand is that when somebody has these objections and just a treadmill of objections to our faith, there's something going on beneath the surface. There's something else going on under the surface. You know, we're gonna we we see anger in them, or maybe we see uh, you know blatant disbelief in the face of strong evidence. But maybe their rejection of our faith, maybe their rejection of Jesus, has more to do with the fact that people love the darkness. And hate the light. Maybe the weight of conviction is too much for them to bear. Maybe they've been hurt or abused by someone who represents Christianity, at least in in their mind. The truth is that people who attack God's word don't understand it. And if they don't understand it, there's a very, very strong possibility that they also have no idea what grace is all about. So you know what? 
there's your opportunity. There's your opportunity to show them. Show them what grace is all about. Be as overflowing with gracefulness as you can possibly be, remembering that at one time in your life, before Jesus cleaned you off, you weren't all that different from where they are. Maybe you are one or two decisions away from being exactly in their shoes, but God was overflowing with gracefulness with you. If I thought that this life was all that there is, that there is no resurrection, no afterlife, I'd be like the sad you sees too. I'd be sad, you see. Get it? It's a theology that has no hope. No hope. That's what you get when you misunderstand the scriptures or when you underestimate the power of God. You get a theology that has no hope. Jesus responds to these Sadducees by basically telling them that they have no idea what they're even talking about because they've tried to develop this exhaustive, consistent theology out of just a small section of the, of, of the scriptures, which, as we're about to see, they, they also didn't understand very well. The, the five books that they did accept as scripture, they didn't understand them as well as they thought they did. And in contrast to the governing authorities, what we're going to see is that God's word, as revealed in Scripture, will never be broken, and that God's power and his rule is infinite, both in power and in duration. So why are the Sadducees wrong here? Because there's no marriage in the afterlife. It's as simple as that. There it is in a nutshell. There is no marriage in the afterlife. That's because we weren't designed, ultimately, for a spouse, We were designed for God. That is ultimately what our greatest purpose, the purpose of our existence is. And the spouse is a means of getting us there because only only a very powerful and very amazing and awesome God could put two sinners, a man and a woman, together under one roof and by doing so teach both of them to become more holy toward God because of their relationship with one another. That's what marriage is all about. And by the way, that's another area where people consistently underestimate the power of God when marriage falls apart and people decide to divorce. I guarantee you there is no marriage that God cannot mend. And anybody who thinks otherwise is underestimating the power of God. But Jesus is saying, after this life, there's no more marriage. Because we'll be completely devoted, completely committed to Jesus as his bride. I mean, what kind of a lover would he be if he wanted to share us? And I believe that when we see him face to face as he truly is, it will change us so deeply, so profoundly, that we'll be completely changed, completely transformed from the inside out, so that we would never settle for anything less than his love. But look at what Jesus does next. He refers to something, actually, that Moses wrote as a means of refuting their argument. And I love that he's able to do that. You know, they have this high view of what Moses wrote, and they don't think there's a resurrection in there. And Jesus is about to say, "Uh, wait a minute, let me correct you here. He says, did you fail to realize that God said, I am the God of Jacob? 
I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. And it's easy for us to, to miss this and to just skim kind of right over it. But when God said that, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all dead. They'd already died. And here's God saying, he's not saying I was their God. He's saying I am their God. Present tense, not past tense. Present tense. Oh, Apparently, the Sadducees missed that part. Minor detail, right? Death had not extinguished their existence because God was still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as he recorded in the Sadducees' scriptures. Now, remember also, by the way, the book of Job is actually the oldest book in the Bible. It, chronologically, if you were to you know, look at it chronologically, like in history, it doesn't predate Genesis. But as far as when it was written, it was written before the Pentateuch. And we should also make note of the fact that uh, in the midst of his suffering, Job wrote, and this is in the earliest manuscripts that we have of the book of Job. He said, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. That's from Job chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. So really, the, the doctrine of the resurrection is one of the oldest doctrines of the Christian faith. Although, as we've seen, it's also certainly implied in the Pentateuch as well. And of course, the reason that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, rather than saying he was their God, is because he's the God of the living and not of the dead. Case closed. Jesus has completely shut these guys down. And apparently, somebody nearby, somebody, was pretty impressed with Jesus' ability to refute them that quickly. Just boom. And so let's see what happens next. Pick it up in uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing. And recognizing that he, Jesus, had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is foremost of all? I mean, how could somebody not be impressed with the grasp that Jesus has on the Scriptures, that that he's able to understand it as exhaustively as he does? Now, I'm not sure exactly what the scribe's intentions were. You know, I don't think that he was necessarily challenging Jesus to a game of Bible trivia or anything like that. And the reason that I say I don't know what his intentions would have been is because on the surface, anyway, you know, this doesn't seem like such a difficult question. This should be one that, that would be pretty easy to understand, but maybe that's only because I've read the scriptures and I know what, how Jesus answers this. This guy, maybe he really doesn't know. That seems to be the case. He seems to be genuinely curious. I don't think he's trying to trap Jesus. He's not out for blood. Maybe he just really wanted to learn something from Jesus. You see, the question about which is the greatest commandment was a topic of a lot of debate and a lot of discussion among Jewish leaders. I mean, there are over 600, 600 commandments, so there are bound to be varying opinions on which one is the most important. But with his answer, Jesus is not only going to identify what the most important commandment or commandments would be, but he's also going to tell us 
what it means to render unto God what belongs to God. Don't miss that, because this is where everything from last week and this week ties in together. What does God want the most from us? Well, he wants a lot of things, but what does he want the most? So we continue, verses 29 and 30. Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And what I absolutely love about Jesus' response, by the way, is that he answered out of the Pentateuch. He answered out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. So maybe, maybe he's answered loudly enough for the Sadducees who just mocked him to hear the answer. So the first commandment, he, he, he lists two that we've given here, two uh, in general, is simply to start with God. Start with God. Know him. Understand him. Love him. But you'll notice that the Shema, that's, that's what this is called. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That's called the Shema. Uh, it isn't a commandment as much as it's a statement. See, when you look at the most extensive lists of commands in the Bible, this one probably isn't on there. It's not a, an instruction that you, that you live by uh, like you do with the rituals that are laid out in the, in the commandments, in the, in, the, like in the book of Leviticus. So what Jesus is saying here is that the rules, the rights, the regulations set forth by any other command are nowhere near as important as knowing and loving the one true God and having a living and active relationship with the one true God. But know this, know this. The reason that we love God ultimately traces back to the fact that he loved us first. He loved us first. He sought us out while we still loved the darkness. The Holy Spirit put needs for fellowship with God and he put needs for experiencing God's presence on our hearts, for experiencing forgiveness. He put that need on our hearts. He placed convictions on our hearts. And he prepared the soil of our hearts so that when the seed was finally planted, when the gospel finally reached our ears, our hearts were ready. But Jesus is saying a lot more than to simply know and experience God's love here. He follows up the Shema with a set of instructions which ultimately point to the necessity of not just knowing God and his love, but responding. Responding to God's love. How do we do that? That's what this is all about. We render to God the things that are God's. We love him back with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And the Greek word that he uses here for love is agape, a completely selfish, self-sacrificial love. You see, these are the things that no human form of government is able to harness and control. The government can control what you do with your money to an extent. The government can set limits on how fast you are legally allowed to drive your car. The government can set limits on what you are allowed to eat. The government can set a lot of limits on a lot of different things, but they can never, ever, ever govern what is going on beneath the surface inside of you. Only you can control what you're doing with your heart. Only you can control what you're doing with your soul, mind, and strength. 
And Jesus is saying that God's greatest desire is to render to God the things that belong to God. Your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So the message here is really that we're to love God with all that we have. Not just part of what we've got. Not just certain aspects of our existence, but with our whole existence. The whole person is to love God. That's ultimately the message here. Pull out all the stops. Don't hold anything back. Give it all to him. The real question comes down to this. What does it actually mean to do these things? And that's a really important question. It's one that we want to make sure that we understand. So let's start with the heart. When we're talking about loving God with all of our hearts, first of all, it doesn't mean that you can't love somebody else. Of course you can love somebody else. When Jesus tells us that we're to love God with all of our heart, he's saying that our decisions, the things that we do, should all reflect, should consistently reflect a deep love for him, first and foremost. Everything we do, every decision we make, every action we consciously make is based on a decision-making process. And thus, we're constantly having those boardroom committee meetings of the heart, like we were talking about last week, in which we're trying to make decisions. Our actions will always reflect our values. You know that? You know that your actions always reflect what you value? There's nothing that any one of us does which doesn't reflect some type of value. And so Jesus is essentially saying that God wants our actions to reflect a holy and righteous value system. Not our own, but God's. Because we've aligned our values with his. Not because we've tweaked God and tried to make him in our own image, but because we're trying to value the things that God values. The heart represents the place where all of our decisions are stored up. And Jesus is telling us here that God wants to be our greatest desire. Next, when we're talking about loving God with all of our soul, the soul represents, what do you think of when you listen to soul music? There's a lot of emotion involved. It, like, it brings your emotions out and you hear all these emotions through the music and that's exactly what it represents. See, it's possible to love someone without being very passionate about our love for them. Sadly, that's how a lot of marriages look once the honeymoon phase is over. That's why we call it the honeymoon phase, because we realize that there's something that happens afterward in which the passion will disappear if we don't do something about it. Eventually, the husband stops opening the car door for his wife. When I met my wife, I tried to open the car door for her, and she said, don't do that. I said, why not? She said, because someday you'll stop. No, I haven't. I still do it. Eventually, the husband stops opening the car door for his wife. Eventually, they stop holding hands in public. And it gets to this point because the love that they feel for one another doesn't excite them anymore. It's not puppy love. It's matured to something beyond that, and that's not exciting. They miss the excitement of puppy love. That feeling of falling but not having fallen in love, if that makes sense. And when a moment like this hits, a lot of people don't know what to do with it. A lot of couples don't know what to do with it. And so what happens? Their hearts wander off off elsewhere. They become absent in the marriage. Now, it doesn't have to reach that point. 
It never has to reach that point. It's each spouse's responsibility to maintain a passionately devout love for the other spouse. But it doesn't come without challenges. It takes a lot of work. It takes willpower. It takes commitment. It takes determination. And Jesus is saying that our love for God is going to require those things. Our love for God should never get stale. Our love for God should never get dry. We all have to make the choice of keeping our love for him new and exciting. It should be an emotionally charged love, an emotionally charged love, a passionate love for God. If you saw a couple months ago how fired up I got on Facebook about what I saw at the chapel of the college that I went to, the reason, man, I, the reason I got so mad is because when you love somebody passionately, you get fired up when they get disrespected. And I guess that's a good thing for a pastor to have, right? Third, Jesus tells us to love God with all of our minds. Tragically, this is one of those aspects. It's an aspect that a lot of I think well-meaning Christians either diminish or write off entirely. Anybody in here ever heard of Joyce Meyer? Joyce Meyer teaches a lot of garbage. I'll be just forthright and frank with you guys. She teaches a lot of garbage. She teaches in her book, Battlefield of the Mind, that one of the keys to growing in our walk and our obedience to God is to quit thinking. Quit thinking. In fact, I went to her website so that I could specifically quote her in what she, what she writes. No joke. Because uh, I want to be able to share this with you guys. She specifically teaches, and I quote, Don't trust your thoughts. Why? She says, quote, Because our thoughts and feelings don't dictate truth to us. As a philosopher, maybe. I can't help but wonder if she thinks that's true. Did she think about what she's going to write? I imagine that she did. Did it dictate truth to her or did it not? Garbage. Garbage. Now, uh, all of us have a responsibility to intellectually engage with our faith, to intellectually engage with the Word of God, to understand it at a deeper level because our mind is a key aspect of our being. That's something that God gave us. That's part of what it means to be in the image of God is to be able to think, to make decisions, to use our minds. Paul wrote this, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And the word dwell is the same Greek word as the word to think. He's saying, think about these things. But how do you know that what you're thinking is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, or worthy of praise? How do you know? It's because you've mentally evaluated those things. You recognize truth because you think about it. And you realize that it's logically consistent, not only within itself, but with reality. It lines up with reality. To love God with all of your mind means getting your intellectual capacities involved in your faith. Thinking is not an unspiritual activity. To the contrary, it is a key aspect of our being, and it's something, it's an aspect of our being that God wants. Fourth and finally, Jesus says that we're to love with all of our strength. Love God with all of our strength. What does that mean? In a nutshell, it means serve. 
maybe in church, maybe out of church, but serve as you are physically able. It means loving God with your actions. You see, the heart is like the engine behind the car. The heart is the motivation behind the actions, but the body will physically act on the heart's desires. And that's where it ends. That's, that's how this cycle ends. And what we see here is that the whole person is involved in this lifestyle that Jesus is describing. Once the heart is moved, the more emotional our love for God should be, and the more his word and his truth fill our thoughts, fill our minds, and the more determined we are to serve with all that we have, with all of our strength. And Jesus is basically saying, don't settle for a faith that's anything less than this. This is what God wants. This is what God wants. But then he adds another commandment. Verses 31 to 34. Jesus continues saying, The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Love God. Love people. And so you serve God by serving people. We're his hands and feet. So the single scribe caught a glimpse of a powerful truth here. He started to get his mind wrapped around what Jesus was saying. He saw the fact that God sees right past all the rituals, all the things, the outwardly things that we do, and he looks right to the heart and he asks for something deeper than what we all see on the surface. He saw that rendering unto God what is God's requires committing our whole selves to a lifestyle of worship, to worshiping God. The Pharisees might have practiced loving God with their strength. Maybe they would have worshiped him uh, with their minds because you know they devoted themselves to understanding the scriptures or, or trying to memorize them anyway. They didn't understand them. But their hearts and their souls were so far from God that it was incomplete because they didn't truly know and they didn't truly love God. And this one guy, this one scribe, he understood that. He got his mind wrapped around that much. And so Jesus commends him and tells him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. In other words, you're almost there, but you're not there yet. What was he missing? Let's not go until one o'clock. We'll cover it next week. But for now, know this. To be close to this type of faith that Jesus is describing here and yet to not be there is still so far away. So are you close to loving God with all of your being? Then persist. Don't stop. Keep going until you get there. You feel like you're there already? I hope your answer is yes. But don't settle for just maintaining where you are. Either way, keep giving more and more of yourself to God. Different aspects 
Focus on giving different aspects if that's what you have to do. If you say, you know, I love the Lord my God with all of my heart, soul, and strength, but I haven't really devoted my mind, go ahead and focus on what that means and work on that. We're all a work in progress. We're all, we've all got, you know, different levels of where we are on these things. But we can't stop now. We can't stop now. Don't ever grow cold or complacent in your love for God. Guard your heart. Guard your mind against apathy. That's the enemy here. That's what it means to render under God the things that belong to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and how it penetrates our hearts. God, only you could be behind the convictions that come when we read this type of stuff and we realize, I thought I was there and I'm not. God, I pray that you would give us the strength, give us the encouragement to persist in chasing after these things and chasing after a passionate love for you, loving you with every aspect of our lives, not holding anything back from you, God, because you deserve it all. You bought it all with your blood. We thank you for redeeming us, for redeeming our whole persons, for redeeming all of us, every aspect of our being. And so I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to lay these things before you self-sacrificially because they are yours. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.